Hey, this is Steve with Life Worth Living. We're going to start a new series on the book of Isaiah. You talk about an interesting book of the Bible, and actually a pretty long book of the Bible. It's got 66 chapters, um, similar to the 66 books of the Bible, actually. Uh, probably a coincidence, um, but it's something to consider. The book of Isaiah is so interesting because it contains... Uh, elements of the Old Testament, as you would expect, because it's in the Old Testament, but also includes so many important aspects of the New Testament, of what Jesus did to save us from our sins. The book of Isaiah has so much to do with restoration, and I don't know about you, but I love having the hope and the knowledge that Jesus wants to restore my life from what it was before. But we're going to be looking at the book of Isaiah, and this this first introductory podcast has to do with what rebellion will do to you. And you're going to find in this podcast that we addressed uh, three steps to rebellion, and each step is a progressive step that we need to be very uh, aware of and um, and be cautioned against. So listen in to find out the dangers of rebellion. start a new series uh, here on Isaiah. Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, one of the most interesting, diverse books of the Bible. Interesting, diverse books of the Bible. It's a long, it's a long book. Anybody know how many book, excuse how many chapters are in the book of Isaiah? 60, 66, somebody said, 66 books in the book of Isaiah. This is a long book. How many books of the Bible are there, by the way? 66. 66 chapters in Isaiah, 66 books in the Bible. Is that a coincidence? I don't know. I don't know. It's interesting, though, because Isaiah has the whole gospel of the Bible in it. It has the Old Testament aspect in it. It also speaks to the New Testament as well. All covered in one book. There is more, there are more prophecies of Jesus in Isaiah than anywhere else you're going to find in the Bible. Speaking about Jesus, the Messiah who's coming. Praise God. So we're going to take a look. We're going to look at it kind of uniquely, though. We're not necessarily going to go chapter by chapter because Isaiah is it's curious how it's broken out. I'll share with you how we're going to go through it in just a second. But let's let's look at some things about the person of who Isaiah was. Not the book first. We're going to get to that in a second. But let's talk about who Isaiah was because there's some there's some things, there's some clues about Isaiah. And it's interesting when you read a book to know about the author of that book, isn't it? If you get to know the author of the book, then you can get to know the book better and understand it a little bit better. So let's let's look at who Isaiah was. By the way, this won't be the only Sunday that we talk about who Isaiah was. I'm just giving you a little brief overview real quick, but we're going to get a lot of interesting little snippets as we go throughout in the coming weeks about who Isaiah was. But let's let's just cover him briefly. His, his dad's name was Amos or Amos. All right. Do we know anything about him? No. We just know his name. <laughs> It'd be like saying, I'm Steve, the son of Steve. 
Do we know things about Steve? Well, thankfully, in this case, we do. But about Amaz, we, don't, we really don't know anything about him. We know that Isaiah, as we read the book of Isaiah, is uh, he, had, he was married. He had at least two children, all right? Um, he was possibly a part of the noble family. We don't know that for certain, but he certainly had access to the monarchs of Judah, of Judah. And we're going to be distinguishing between Israel and Judah, and you'll see why in just a little bit. But possibly his family was noble, uh, of, of noble descent. Um, he lived and ministered in a time of moral decline. Can you identify with that here in the United States, a time of moral decline where things now are acceptable that even 20 years ago weren't acceptable, even 10 years ago weren't acceptable? There's a moral decline in the United States, and I'm not getting into politics here. That's just simply a fact. You can just see it. Uh, hey, it seems like we're in spring and the shootings have begun, <laughs> right? It seems like every other day there's a shooting somewhere in the United States in a, in a place, in a public area. It could be easily in one of our Walmarts. In, in one, we already experienced that a year or two ago. Mass shooting, the third worst in U.S. history here in El Paso, Texas. There is a moral decline in the United States, and it's it's it seems to be accelerating. Well, guess what, Isaiah? This is going to be an interesting study then, because we can make some correlations between what that time was like and what our time is like. And he uh, he his ministry ex spanned about 40, 50 years over the course of several kings of Judah. Uzziah was one of them. It was a, probably at the very tail end of Uzziah's reign that he began to minister and he began to write and he was a prophet isaiah was a prophet in other words he heard from the lord and he spoke the words lord there's the the, the lord's word there's some of you here who are prophets prophets what does that mean it doesn't necessarily mean that you foretell something it means you hear from god and you speak what he's told you in some respects we should all be prophets right we should all be listening to God, and we should all be speaking what God has told us, has spoken to our hearts. Now, tradition, this is not in the Bible, but Jewish tradition is that Isaiah was martyred by King Hezekiah's son, Manasseh, the most evil king Judah ever had. It said uh, that during his reign, there was so much violence that there was his blood everywhere. Blood from one end of the violence from one end of the city to the other in Jerusalem. He was so vicious, so violent. He offered up his children as sacrifices uh, to to a pagan god. Violent, vicious king. But at the end, this king actually gave his heart, <laughs> turned back to God. But God had had it up to here with what was going on, and He decreed that there would be exile as a result of Manasseh's reign. But it's it's tradition. Uh, that Isaiah was martyred during this time. In fact, in Hebrews, I believe it's 11, it's spoken of that there were those who were sawed in two. Now, that's pretty grotesque, pretty gruesome. But that reference in Hebrews, many Jews believe, is talking, speaking of what happened to Isaiah. We don't know that for, for a fact. But his message uh, was delivered between uh, around uh, 740 
BC all the way to about 700 BC. So for about 40 years. Now remember, time, now that we look back on it, time was going backwards. You would say, well, Steve, you got that backwards. You should have said from 701 to 740. No, no, no. It's Time was clicking up to the time of Jesus. And from the time of Jesus, time has begun to move forward again. So that's how we look back historically on it, whether you believe in Jesus or not. Isn't that something? God controls the times and the seasons and the patterns and the dates. Praise God. <laughs> that can't be changed. Well, let's look at just some quick historical context. In all of this introduction, by the way, we're only going to be able to cover the first eight verses of Isaiah 1 today. <laughs> so it's important to kind of get a basic basic understanding of Isaiah, who Isaiah was, a historical context, and then a little aspect of the book of Isaiah before we launch in to reading through Isaiah chapter 1. But let, this is very important to understand. In about 930 B.C., almost a thousand years before Jesus was born, the kingdoms of Judah and Israel broke into two pieces. Maybe everybody knows that, maybe you don't, but I think it's important to, to realize there was King David, there was King Solomon, and then King Solomon's son was so dumb, <laughs> so godless, that he couldn't hold the kingdom together, and it was split. Judah... And uh, was it was the other uh, Benjamin, right? Benjamin, and then the other ten tribes of Israel that called referred to as the Northern Kingdom. That was Israel, and then Judah was the Southern Kingdom. So, uh, you know, 930 BC, uh, almost a thousand years before Jesus, the, the kingdom was broken into two. And so as you read first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles, you read about the kings of Israel and you read about the kings of Judah. All right. And so Isaiah ministered in the kingdom of Judah where Jerusalem was. And he these kings, Kings Uzziah, King Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah, they were Judah's kings simultaneously during part of that time. There was also Israel, Israel's kings as well. So here's here's the historical context, though. In 750, how many of you history buffs do we have here? All right. How many of you hate history? Okay. All right. So those of you that hate history, just hang with me just for a second. Even though it's you don't like it, just, just kind of listen in, all right, and, and make sure you don't tune out just because it's history. I mean, some people hate math. Some people hate English. Some people hate history. I, I, I tend to like history myself. But in 750 B.C., all right, already Judah and Israel were separated, two separated kingdoms for over 180 years. Uh, Assyria began to become an empire. Assyria. First there was Egypt, but then over time Assyria began to grow as an empire. Now, Assyria is where mostly... Um, uh, uh, Turkey is, Syria is, Iran and Iraq are. It's kind of that area. In fact, I think I have a, don't, don't show it quite yet. Well, go ahead and show it just really quick, Kyle. I think it's the next one here. You can see it right here. This with the, the orange section here, I should have got a pointer. I meant to bring one. I'm going to use these scissors right here. And I'm sorry for those of you online that you can't see. But you see right there is Palestine. It's, it, there's Jerusalem. Here's Egypt down here. All of this is modern-day Iraq. There's Jordan right there. 
there's Turkey up there, and then there's Iran. So a, a good part of it was in, in the Iraq-Iran area, and this was at its peak. So here's the deal, is over the course of several hundred years, the Assyrian Empire would, would expand, and then it'd shrink. It'd expand, and then it'd shrink. And it had various emperors who were more aggressive than other ones, better leaders, worse leaders. But at its peak, you see uh, how that, that, what that empire kind of looked like. But that began, that empire started really beginning about 750 B.C., and little by little, if you go back to the map, Kyle, I'm sorry. Little by little, they started coming down into the north. You see where it says Phoenicia right there? Um, that's where Lebanon is, and that's where Lebanon was often referred to back then. Assyria kept pushing down there, and the northern kingdom of Israel started shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. And what they would do is they'd take the Israelites, not Judah, but they'd take the Israelites out and they would deport them up into the area of the Euphrates, which is kind of at the top up there. You see the Euphrates River, it's at the top where it says Syria. They would deport all these Israelites and put them in places where they couldn't speak the language, they didn't know the culture, and it would shake them up and it would it would make them powerless. So they would there wouldn't be uprises. So they'd move people around and make it really difficult for, for these people to pull together to, for an uprising. All right. So they were chipping away at that northern kingdom and clo and getting closer and closer and closer to Jerusalem over the course of decades and even hundreds of years. They were they were pushing down. And there was constant battles back and forth. You'll you'll hear a lot of this mm -hmm. as we talk about some of these kings that Isaiah ministered to or, or during their time. All right, now check this out. Remember the story of Jonah? Jonah and the, the, we call it Jonah and the whale, but it probably wasn't a whale. It was probably just a big fish. Jonah was during this time, in around 750 BC, when the empire was starting to grow. That's when the book of Jonah was most likely written. There's historians and theologians that argue back and forth that it was a little bit later time, a little bit earlier time, but it a lot of folks believe that it was, Jonah was written and took place in 750 BC when the empire, the empire of this of the Syrians was starting to grow. Their capital was Nineveh. If you read the story of Jonah, you hear it's all surrounding the capital of Nineveh. That's where the Assyrians were. Now, let me tell you something about the Assyrians. They were brutal, brutal people. When they took a city. What they did to the leaders was horrible. I won't even tell you what some of the things they did, but one of the things they did do that I'll share with you is they would put a hook in the nose of the king and they would drag him, showing that they had totally defeated this people. Now, you'll see as we get into Isaiah that God speaks to the Syrian with the same example, which is it's crazy. It's absolutely amazing. But anyways, as I was saying, Jonah was told now that Jonah was an Israelite he didn't like the Assyrians at all God told Jonah you go to Nineveh the capital of the Assyrians this empire that's coming in and starting to beat up your nation and tell them about the love of God wow and the Bible says that 120,000 people in Nineveh turned their heart to God because of Jonah's testimony to them who knows what history would have been like if, ne if Jonah hadn't done that? There could have been a, a far greater push, a, a far greater brutality.
But those people, one generation of those people got saved and got to know Jesus. Absolutely amazing. All right, so that kind of puts the Bible into context. You start seeing all the parts kind of coming together. Well, Isaiah lived during the time of the rising up of the Assyrian Empire. Now think about this. Joseph and um, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they were during the Egyptian kind of empire. Isaiah was during the Assyrian Empire. And Daniel and Jeremiah and all those guys were during the Babylonian Empire. And they were, they were sequential. Egyptian, Assyrian, and, um, and the Babylonian Empire, the Medes and the Persians as well. Does this help kind of just give kind of a picture of, of the backdrop of Isaiah, the book of Isaiah? All right. Now, just mention one more thing. In, 720, in 722, the northern kingdom of Israel was destroyed and exiled by, by Assyria. And what that meant was right next door, right just a few miles north of Jerusalem was the Assyrian border. The Assyrian border was right there. It had changed dramatically. The landscape of that whole part of the world had changed dramatically, and the Assyrians were knocking on the door of Judah. It, they were right, right there. Scary, scary times. So let's just look real quick at the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah, some, even some scholars, theologians, even claim that Isaiah was written by different authors. Now, here's the danger. It's possible. There's, there's not impossible that that would be the case. But the danger with that, the reason why these scholars say this is because Isaiah makes predictions of the future that a, that a person who doesn't believe in God say, you could know that without having already been in the future and known what was happening. You see what I mean? And so people who look, read the Bible skeptically, they look at it and say, there's no way Isaiah could have known that, for instance, King Cyrus of Babylon was going to do what he did. But you know what? God has power. God knows the future. And there is an aspect of prophecy that's predictive in nature, that foretells the future. And I believe with all my heart that Isaiah was written by Isaiah before a lot of these things happened. He was, he was foretelling the Babylonian empire before it ever happened. Daniel was the same way. Amen. God knows the future. He knows the past. He knows the present. And he can show you things even before they happen. Praise God. We never want to go, and I say this often, we never want to go to soothsayers, fortune tellers, palm readers to find your future. Let God take care of your future. Let God take care of your future. But this book is, of Isaiah is really broken into um, three parts. There's chapters 1 through 39. They're very kind of historical in nature. They follow, for the most part, but they kind of follow a pattern of history that's so cool because you can read first, uh, Second Kings and parts of Chronicles and see what Isaiah was talking about. And we're going to do that. We're going to study some of Kings, some of Chronicles in correlation with Isaiah so that it makes sense. You start reading the major prophets and the minor prophets. Those are books in the Bible in the Old Testament. And sometimes it gets a little dry and dull. And sometimes there's too much judgment in it. And you just, it just wears you out. Those aren't books that I necessarily frequent that much. 
But if you read them in the context of what was going on, they make a lot more sense. And we're going to be doing that as we go through some of these books. So we're going we're gonna to look at uh, chapters 1 through 39. Then there's chapters 40 through 55. And a lot of these were sermons. They appear to be sermons that Isaiah preached to, to the, to the, the uh, kingdom of Judah and to the kings of Judah. They were sermons, and so you can read them that way as sermons, as messages from God uh, to those people. And then in, in chapters 50, uh, 56 through 66 is another, is a third section of Isaiah. And this is interesting. It addresses the exiles in part of that have come back from Babylon hundreds of years later. He's already laying the groundwork and saying, this is what you need to know when you come back from exile. And they were another set of sermons. Now, here's what I was telling you before. We're not going to go through every chapter in church of Isaiah, but what, we'll, we, what we will do is in your weekly reading, give you some of these sermons in Isaiah 40 through 66 and let you read those for yourself. Let you be encouraged by what those, those sermons said to those people because guess what? You know what? We're coming out of exile right now. The Christian, the American Christian church has been in exile. We've been frail. We've been powerless. We've looked for human things to accomplish spiritual things. And you know what? We're being brought back from exile to begin to do God's work the way God wants us to do. Amen. Do you believe that? God is bringing us back. You say, I haven't been hearing God's voice very much lately. Guess what? God's voice is going to become stronger and stronger and stronger in your ear. Listen for him. Watch for him. Wait for him. God is on the move, and he wants us to move as well. All right. Well, there's five major themes in Isaiah, the book of Isaiah. There's the nature and character of God. That's number one. There's the nature of sin. Uh, just stick on this one slide, but the nature of sin, there's the nature of salvation, there's the broad topic of servanthood, and then there's the Messiah, there's prophecies of Jesus, numerous, rich, powerful prophecies of Jesus that all came true with Jesus being born, with him dying, and with him being resurrected. All right, so the, some of the major themes of the nature and character of God uh, that there's no being like God in the whole wide universe. There's nobody like God. There's no person like God, and there's no God but God. And I'm talking about God whose son is Jesus Christ, not to be confused with the other gods that are worshiped in this world. He's the holy one. We're going to really touch on that one. He deeply cares about his creation. He deeply cares about you and wants to be involved in your day-to-day -day life. He's a God of cause and effect. You mess up, somebody's got to pay, but he sent Jesus to pay for your sins. He's the God of cause and effect. He's not going to let sins go unpunished, but praise God, he sent his son to carry all our punishment so that we could serve him freely. Praise the Lord. All right, he's absolutely, this God of the universe is absolutely trustworthy and dependable. You can go to God and bank on him taking care of your needs and helping you. The nature of sin, number two, 
What is sin? It's rebellion against God. We're going to be talking about that today. Sin is thumbing your nose in God's face and saying, I'm going to do what I'm going to do, and I don't care what you have to say about it. That's rebellion, and that's sin. Uh, Sin is also a refusal to acknowledge or recognize the character of God. It's saying, well, God to me is, you know, this is how I think of God. Who cares how you think of God? God is who God is. God is. He describes himself in his word, and that's who he is. You can think of him any which way you want to. You could think of me and say, well, Steve, I picture Steve with lots of hair. I Steve, I picture Steve, you know, 6'3", big old huge bronze kind of guy. Well, guess what? That's not who I am. I'm bald, and I'm 5'10", and I'm not that big. All right? You can picture me however you want to, but I am who I am. And God is whoever he says he is. So a refusal to recognize that God does have a a fiery side. He does have a loving side. He does have a redemptive side. He does have a side that will judge us at some point. There is a heaven and a hell, whether you want to accept it or not. And some people are going to end up in hell and some people are going to end up in heaven. It is what it is. And we've got to accept that. Otherwise, we sin. Otherwise, we sin. Refusal to recognize the character of God. Self-exaltation and pride. That's sin. Worship of creation. Worship of your car, of your job, of your, your, your talents, of your goals. That's sin. Worship of God is not sinful. It's, it's what we're called to do. And here's the last thing about the nature of sin that we'll get into a lot is the act of religion without relationship is sin just going to church just tithing just reading your bible no it's got to be a heart thing you need relationship with the lord jesus christ if you're if you're going to stay out of sin (laughs) religion is a waste of time in fact it's counterproductive because you think you're on the right track and you're not religion is a waste of time we all have the tendency to be religious in nature instead of having relationship with Jesus. The nature of salvation, we're going to talk about that. I'm going to spend a lot of time on these. Servanthood, all right? Um, and then the Messiah, the, the prophecies of the King of Kings, of, of the uh, Jesus was coming from the lineage of David, that he would lay down his life for his people, that he would empower his people to live a righteous life. So let's let's just jump right into Isaiah 1. We don't have a whole lot of time left, and I want to give a little time for prayer here at the end. All right, it's very possible that Isaiah wrote chapters 2 through 66 and then came back and wrote chapter 1. Any author, any author will write their book and then write the, the, the introduction to the book and the final part of the book. And it's very possible that Isaiah wrote the whole book of Isaiah and then came back and wrote chapter 1 as an introduction to the whole book, kind of introducing it and summarizing it. And in chapter 1, what we find out is Isaiah addresses rebellion, the effect of rebellion, the empty religious gestures that don't impress God at all. (laughs) He talks about repenting from wrong and doing, uh, from wrongdoing, 
and, and having God's forgiveness in your life? Have you ever been cleansed by God where God cleaned your heart out and you felt so good? He forgave you of your sins. And then number five, he speaks of in chapter one, and this is about the theme of the whole book of Isaiah is God restores you. God restores you. Praise the Lord. Is anybody else hot in here? Can we turn up the air? I'm about to pass out from a heat stroke up here. All right. Let's jump into verses one through eight and just get going a little bit here. Let me read it to you. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amoz, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. He ministered during at least four kings, uh, during the time of the four kings, these four kings of Judah. Right, verse 2, it says, Hear me, you heavens, listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey, its owner's uh, manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. Why should you be beaten anymore? Why should you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured. Your whole heart is afflict afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there's no soundness, only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with olive oil. Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you, laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. Daughter of Zion... Whenever it talks of, speaks of daughter of Zion, it's talking about the, the people of, of Judah. Daughter of Zion, because Zion was Jerusalem, all right? So in other words, the, the children of Jerusalem are left like a shelter in a vi vineyard, like a hut in a cucumber field with a, like a city under siege. What a, what a picture that is. Can you imagine a cucumber field with a little hut in the middle of it? In other words, they're, they're under siege. They're surrounded by their enemies. So let's break this down quickly here in verse two. I'm going to go back up to verse two. It says, hear me, you heavens, listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. I have four kids and I've Tina and I have raised them and loved them and poured into them. How do you think I would feel if these kids rebelled against me and said, we're not going to come see you anymore. We don't love you. It would kill me. It would absolutely break my heart. Jesus has poured himself into our hearts. We owe him our loyalty. <laughs> Anything less breaks the heart of God because he's done so much. He's invested so much in us. But let's talk about this concept of rebellion. Whenever you rebel, let's look at Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 8. The writer of Hebrews, who, by the way, I have no idea who it is. I personally don't think it was the Apostle Paul. I think the, the way the author writes Hebrews is very, very different from how Paul wrote. But anyways, whoever this author was in the New Testament of Hebrews says, it is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away. Now put, put a pin in this word, fallen away, 
to be brought back to repentance. I have struggled with this scripture so many times. I read it. I'm like, what? What? God, it's impossible. But it says, to their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Land that drinks from the rain often falling on it and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed receives a blessing from God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. This term, falling away, is a term for rebellion. It is impossible for someone who rebels against God, and we'll get into this a little deeper just in a minute or two here. If you rebel against God for you to be brought back to repentance as long as you are crucifying the Son of God all over again. If you're sitting there crucifying Jesus and and rebelling against him this way, you can't be brought, brought back to repentance. But praise God, the minute you stop crucifying Jesus, you turn away from that act, you can be brought back into the repentance of God. Isn't that awesome? Let's look at this word in, in the Greek here of, of this, these verses in Hebrews. Fallen away. What does that mean? Well, I looked at several um, uh, tr translations of the Bible. Some say, turn away from their allegiance. Have you turned your allegiance away from Jesus? You wouldn't be here this morning if you had turned your allegiance away from God. You wouldn't be on this call right now if you had turned your allegiance away from God. But here's another translation committed apostasy we're going to look at this word at apostasy in just a second abandoned their faith i'll never forget walking with a teenage friend of mine when i was in high school he says i'm turning away from jesus i don't have faith in jesus anymore he was conscient consciously turning away from jesus he was falling away he's making a decision to walk walk away from god abandoned their faith turned against god that's what falling away means turn have you turned against god no you wouldn't be here today <laughs> if you turned against god come on you deserted christ abandoned his faith bible hub which is a, a, it's a website i frequent pretty often uses the word defector you know what a defector is back in the cold war days people would defect and they still do it today defect from the united states to russia or to china or vice versa you defect you turn your back and you work against the very country you used to be a part of there's nobody in this room who's a defector you wouldn't be here today if you had defected if you were working against jesus another thought is uh, you conspire against jesus all right. Apostasy, by the way, was used in one of these uh, one, one of these translations. Apostasy means to abandon uh, what one professed, a total desertion or departure of one's faith. Not that you have a little temptation in your mind or that you slip into sin. No, you abandon God. You turn. That's what rebellion is. You turn against God and you say, absolutely not, God, I'm not following you anymore. And you mean it when you say it. Verse 3 of Isaiah, it says, The ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's manger. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. And this is what happened. When you rebel, when someone rebels against God, can you think of anybody that, that you know that's rebelled against God? Some people maybe. You know, they just said, I'm not following you anymore, Jesus. When they rebel, 
it leads to them not understanding relationship with Jesus anymore. Jesus doesn't make sense to them anymore. God doesn't make sense any, anymore. They don't understand. Look at this. This verse says, the, the children of Israel, or Israel does not know. My people don't understand. They don't understand God. They don't understand his goodness. They don't understand his purpose. They don't understand anything about God. God is senseless to them because they're in rebellion against God. Now, I'll tell you, in each and every one of our hearts, there's a little bit of rebellion against God. There's little hard places in our lives where we've said, no, God. And in those places, it's hard to understand what God is doing because we're pushing against God. God wants to break up those hard places in our hearts. All right? We don't understand his character, his purpose. And what that leads to is hopelessness. Somebody who rebels against God gets hopeless very quickly. They lose inner strength very quickly, and they succumb to whatever temptations and tendencies flow their way. They just go with the flow because they have nothing strong inside of them. But in verse 4, it says, Woe to the sinful nation, to a people whose guilt is great. What is guilt? Hey, if you're guilty, that means you have unatoned sin, sin that's still there that God hasn't atoned for. A brood of evildoers. That's what Jesus called the Pharisees in the New Testament. People give her children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel, and they have turned their back on him. There's three words, three verbs here. Forsaken, spurned, and turned. All right? I looked these up and studied them very carefully. Forsake is to leave and depart, to be absent from the Lord. That's what we call backsliders. You leave the Lord. You might leave the Lord because you feel condemned. You don't feel good enough. You feel ashamed. You might leave the Lord because he didn't answer one of your prayers. You might turn your back on the Lord because you're too busy. <laughs> don't do that. Don't forsake the Lord for some dumb reason. All right? Don't, don't depart from him. Don't be absent from his side. The next one is a stronger verb, to spurn. That means to kick. Have you ever kicked God before? <laughs> the, the Bible talks about kicking against the goads. There was this goad that the, the, the farmer would prod the oxen with, and the oxen, whenever it didn't like it, would kick against the goad. It would kick against that, that thing that was pricking him. All right? When God pricks you, listen to God. Don't kick against him. Listen to him. Cooperate with God. So that's what spurn means, to kind of kick against to despise God's correction. The third one is the strongest one. They've turned their backs on him. That means you become a perfect stranger to God. You've decided to become a part of a different family. You've gone from being married to God to being a prostitute is, is literally what that, that word entails. You've gone from light to dark, and you've done it consciously and intentionally. All right? That's what rebellion does. It's a three-step process where you start off forsaking, being absent from the Lord. Then you start kicking against his, his proddings. And then finally you say, I'm not part of your family anymore. I'm going to go to another family. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mention something here. It should be really, really hard for us to leave our church and go to another church. The, the slightest little thing shouldn't say, oh, I'm not going to be part of this church anymore. That's a bad thing. Pick a church and stick with it. Be loyal because you know what? This is the body of Christ. 
And if you mistreat the body, you're mistreating Jesus. You mistreat Jesus, you're mistreating the body. Find a body of believers and stick with it and be loyal through thick and thin. I encourage you. I'm shocked even recently how quickly and how easily people can just leave just because of one little thing. All right? Be loyal, be strong, be steadfast, and hang hang tightly with, with each other. All right? But this first, this first word, forsake, remember forsake, spurn, turn your back. Forsake means to backslide. It means you start slipping away from the Lord little by little. Work is more important to you, or maybe you're having a big problem, or you, 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 a million excuses, a million excuses, and little by little you start slipping away from the Lord, and your life gets harder and harder and harder and harder because you've backslidden. Guess what? The Bible says, in, in not exactly in these terms, but Jesus is married to the backslider. He goes after the 100th sheep that got lost, picks it up, and carries it back to him. That sheep left, but he brought it back into his presence. In Romans 2, 4, it says, The kindness of God leads you to repentance. His kindness draws you back into repentance uh, so that you're close with God once again don't let an unanswered prayer take your heart away from God don't let some question about God turn you against him don't let one of your own failures and your condemnation and shame keep you from the side of Jesus let all of those things push you closer to God not farther away from God I'll end with this even though there's other things that I want to say but we'll get into them next week the difference between Judah and Peter, Judas and Peter, excuse me. Remember, Judas was the guy that betrayed Jesus, the disciple who betrayed Jesus, and Peter was the one who disowned Jesus. Judas went on and hung himself. He committed suicide, never acknowledging that Jesus was who he says he was. He just said, I have betrayed an innocent person. He didn't say, I've betrayed the Son of God. He said, I betrayed an innocent person. He went out and hung himself. He rebelled against God, and look what happened to him. Peter, on the other hand, disowned Jesus, called curses down on himself, said, I don't know the man, totally was disloyal to Jesus. And you're going to see it on Tuesday. If you read the scriptures that I give you on Tuesday, uh, you'll see that Jesus went back and reinstated Peter. He backslid. But Jesus reached out, grabbed him by the nap of the neck, and brought him right back in again. That's how God operates. So my message to you today is don't rebel against God. Don't, don't kick against him. Don't despise his family. All right? I'm telling you, work with God. Cooperate with God. Do what God calls you to do. Let's, let's bow our heads. I know this has been a little bit long. Jesus, we thank you, Heavenly Father. If our prayer team could come on up, I'm going to kind of show you what we're going to start doing here. Lord Jesus, I thank you, God, because we want, Lord, hearts that are, that are moldable by you. Lord, whenever you prod us because we're going in the wrong direction, help us not to kick against you, but to look back at you and say, Jesus, where am I going wrong? And then take corrective action. Lord God, we don't want to be rebellious. Lord, being rebellious keeps us from understanding you, from knowing you, from entering into relationship with you. Lord, we can't walk in your ways if we're walking in rebellious ways. Lord, help us not to spurn the Holy One of Israel. 
but Lord, to cooperate with you. 